Podcast. Welcome to Chat Ed Pod, a podcast with two friends who love to talk and learn together. I'm Lacey. And I'm Annie. And this is an education podcast with the tagline, Education Conversations About Equity, Transformation, and Belonging. So Lacey, as we always start off, what are you watching, reading, listening to right now? So this morning, I just ordered two books um, that I have been wanting to read but have not really found the time or made the time. Um, but since our book is out and published, I feel like now I have uh, the mental capacity <laughs> to read something besides what we have been reading for our book. Um, so there's two books I ordered. One is called Street Scholar. It's by Doc Dr. Angel Jones. Um, and so what it is, is uh, this is according to the book and the website. Her website, it is an unapologetic call to action that challenges the academy to thoughtfully and intentionally engage in public scholarship. Um, so Dr. Jones, she is a Afro-Latina scholar who uses social media as an educational tool to educate, advocate, and liberate. So um, yeah, I'm just I'm excited to read this book. I follow her on social media. And I also, I met her when I was a grad student. She came and did a, like a virtual conversation. And I was just like, oh, this is some, like she's saying some really great things. And she talks about her experience um, being in higher ed. And at that time I was in higher ed working as an adjunct instructor and just seeing like the similarities and, and hearing someone else's experience. So I'm looking forward to reading that. And another book that I also ordered was Unearthing Joy, um, which is a follow-up to Cultivating Genius, which is by Dr. Godi Muhammad. And so, yes, yeah, she really defines joy as more than just celebration and happiness, but also as wellness, beauty, healing, and justice for oneself and across humanity. So those are going to be the two books that I'm going to be reading in the next few weeks. Annie, what are you reading, watching, or listening to? Yeah, so um, one of my other co-authors on a couple books that I've written um, previously to the one we wrote, um, I her name is Teresa Boulay, and we got together virtually because she's on the East Coast, but we got together this week, and she was telling me about this podcast she's been listening to and so I started listening to it, and it's fantastic. It's called 10% Happier. And the specific episode she was telling me about was about trauma, because um, we are in conversations. We've been in conversations for a few years, really, about a book uh, kind of surrounding the trauma that women went through during the pandemic specifically. Um, and so this one, this specific episode, which is from April 19th, um, the the host, Dan Harris, talks with um, a doctor um, about trauma and about kind of how our society is making us sick, essentially. And it's really, really interesting. Um, what the kind of synopsis of the podcast of this specific episode, it says, there's so much to be grateful for in modern medicine. We can all agree that we would not do as well in a world with no Advil or dentistry. And yet, the guest today on this 
podcast that I listen to, who is a renowned doctor, says modern medicine is overlooking something crucial. The impact of modern living, the impact modern living has on our minds and bodies. In other words, we are surrounded by hidden societal and structural sources of stress, and we aren't thinking about how to treat and prevent these factors that are degrading our happiness and our immune system. Um, and so I'm going to maybe mispronounce this doctor's name, but the doctor who is on this episode is Dr. Gabor Mate, M-A-T-E, with a, a little asterisk above the um, E. Um, and his book is called The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Um, and so it was a really interesting listen. Um, it talks about how um, years ago, MS was 50-50 men and women, and now it has completely turned to be mostly women. There's not a 50-50 um, kind of ratio anymore of people who are diagnosed with MS. And it talks about weathering of Black females. Um, and that's a concept that I think Lacey and I have talked about before. And basically, I feel like it supports a lot of what Lacey and I are talking about on this podcast and in our work. But it's just a really interesting read. <clears throat> I'll put a link down in our um, show notes to a link to this specific episode. Um, but yeah, so I have I listened to that. And other than that, I... I'm not been good at reading and doing other things. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what has been keeping me busy. Annie, do you mind defining or briefly talking about weathering and what it means for those who are listening to us maybe for the first time or who don't know what weathering means? Yeah, so um, weathering essentially means or kind of um, can be broken down into the microaggressions, which if you think of, if you follow Ibram Kendi, it's not, uh, it's not micro, they're actually big, they're actually um, racial aggressions or racial trauma um, that Black women experience at a higher percentage than really any other gender, intersectionality of gender and race, and it essentially weathers their body. It essentially, um, physiologically, kind of ages them at a faster rate because of the cultural and societal stressors that they continue to experience in our society. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, now on to the article for today. Annie, what do we have? So we have an article that um, has been big news in the field of early childhood. Um, and the article specifically that we are going to talk about is from NPR. Um, and it, the title is Alabama Governor Ousts a Top Education Official Over a Book's Woke Concepts on Race. And this was by the Associated Press on April 22nd. And essentially what this is saying is that Alabama Governor Kay Ivey on Friday, so it would be on maybe two Fridays ago when you're listening to this, announced she replaced her director of early childhood education over the use of a teacher training book written by a nationally recognized education group that the Republican governor denounced as teaching, quote, woke, woke concepts because of language about inclusion and structural racism. And so this has been blowing up in the field of early childhood. Um, the book is DAP, or Developmentally Appropriate Practice. This is a foundational book in almost every single early childhood program um, in higher ed, early childhood setting, early childhood field, everything. It is put out by NACI, which is the National Education, National Association of the Education of Young Children. 
And um, this is, I don't know how else to say it, like a slap in the face to early childhood educators, um, especially people who have dedicated their profession to inclusion um, and making sure that every single child has individualized care and individualized instruction. So Lacey, what are your thoughts? So when I first read this article, um, when I, so it was actually another article I read first uh, when this first came out. And I was like, okay, what's the book? Like, I'm like reading, because at first they didn't say the book. They didn't say the title of the book. I'm like, what? Like, what is this book? Why don't I know about this book? Like, how can this book be so bad? What's going on? And then once I found out it was the, the Nacy book, I was like, one, like I read that in my undergrad, like that was part of what we did. Like we had to take the the, the NACI code of conduct and break that down, had seminar on it, make sure we understood it. And that's like, I, I almost started to laugh because like on the woke concepts, like this, this has to be a different book. Like, cause the book that I read, it really just prepares you to become a, a, a teacher, early childhood teacher. Um, so I thought it was just very interesting, the fact that in some of the, the first article did not even name the book. And then it is, I am not surprised that, um, that, that someone in power, someone in a position of power would once they became aware of this book, that they would try to get rid of it, right? That um, I'm trying to find my 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 terminology. So when you are thinking about your terminology, hmm. I know you're telling me to pause, but I'm going to give you time to think because I'm going to share with our listeners what basically the principles of developmentally appropriate practice are. Mm-hmm. And so there are, so currently I'm teaching a class at a small um, state school called Western Illinois University. I'm an adjunct um, there right now. And um, we are using this as our textbook. We are using developmentally appropriate practice as our textbook. And so here are the recommendations that NACI puts out. And I will also link this in our show notes. So development and learning are dynamic processes that reflect the complex interplay between a child's biological characteristics and the environment, each shaping the other as well as future patterns of growth. Um, all domains of child development, which are physical developmental, cognitive de development, social and emotional development, and linguistic development, including bilingual or multilingual development, as well as approaches to learning, are important. Each domain both supports and is supported by the others. Number three, play promotes joyful learning that fosters self-regulation, language, cognitive and social competencies, as well as content knowledge across disciplines. Play is essential for all children, birth through eight years old. Number four, although general progressions of development and learning can be identified, variations due to cultural contexts, experiences, and individual differences must be considered. And Lacey, going back to what you said about people in power realizing what this book talks about, this could be one of those key areas, um, this kind of fourth principle of developmentally appropriate practice. 
Children are active learners from birth, constantly taking in and organizing information to create meaning through their relationships, their interactions with their environment, and their overall experiences. And then there's about four more that I'm not going to read. But um, I will link this um, from, the NACE, from the National Association of the Education of Young Children website. But going back to what you said, I think it's really pulling out the um, making sure we identify and address cultural context, experiences, and individual differences. All right. So I have my words that people will, people empower if they want to continue to remain in power, if they want to continue to remain uh, the dominant culture, that they will put barriers to make it difficult for other people to gain power or for other people to feel recognized. Um, so, it is almost to the point where they are trying to erase or to say differences don't exist, which very much is this, almost like this color blindness. Like, oh, we're just gonna teach children all the same. We're just gonna teach teachers all the same. Um, but if we do not, if teachers do not see the individual differences of their students and uh, meet the students and meet the families where they are, then they can, they are not and cannot properly teach and build relationships with those students. And so it is, it is frustrating, especially having children who are not the dominant culture or who are not the dominant culture people in power, right? Um, and so living in Florida and seeing people in power continue to uh, create, try to create and pass laws, try to attack school systems that are being, that are trying to be equitable. Like I continue to see this and it is because I, as a parent, it frustrates the, can I say hell? Sure. Okay. It frustrates the hell out of me. Like it really truly bothers me. Um, the, and then the fact that they're tying it to like developmentally appropriate practice. So we're, we're, we're attacking teachers teaching developmentally, like what's appropriate. And it's like, this is just, I think at this point, if we put race or gender in anything, somebody's going to try to attack it. It's like, when will it stop? Like, what, what do you, like, governor, what do you want? What what do you like? What do you want? Do you are, are you are we trying to go back to days of slavery? Like what do you want? And so just it gets it gets frustrating and irritating because like I can't I know families that live in Alabama like I know black families that live in Alabama like now this is this is where they have to live I live in Florida this is this is why I have to it just it gets annoying and frustrating because um that this the lady what's her name barbara cooper that was the director mm -hmm. like I, I i'm like yes you did like you know she was forced to resign um she didn't just say i'm just gonna take it out like i i applaud her but doing this equity work 
times like this, this is exhausting because now this lady has lost her job, lost her finances because she's standing up for what she believes in. Like, um, so yes, this is. And standing up for what she believes in that includes everyone and isn't standing up for something she believes in that is exclusionary, right? Yeah. And so other people can say, well, the governor is standing up for what she believes in. Correct. Mm -hmm. But through that, she is excluding people. I don't know how else to say that, right? Yeah. So going back to that question that Lacey and I always ask during our coaching, who are you willing to exclude and why? Um, this governor seems like she is willing to exclude who I'm not sure, um, but at least, you know, children who are from historically marginalized groups. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that this really speaks to what we were talking about at the beginning around weathering and how I kind of described weathering and how microaggressions are not micro. They are big. They are traumatic. They are aggression. They are... Um, it is not something that can just be swatted away, but it is something that continually weighs on the minds and bodies of um, of historically marginalized populations um, and people who have historically marginalized populations in their families or in their friend circle or, right? Um, and so I think that I know that this is also part of that weathering process of what the hell are we going to do now? You just mm -hmm. keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing us down further and further and further. Give us a break. Like, let mm -hmm. us just be, let us be, right? Like, mm -hmm. why can't you just see us? Um, yeah. And it's, yeah, the, like, that you're, you're trying to push us down. And so it becomes this, like, do I fight? Like, do I fight it? Do I fight that you're trying to push me down? Do I, you know, focus more on educating my children at home? Like, how do I, how do I balance this? Or, like, it gets exhausting. Like, the, the weathering part, it gets exhausting, the fact that now this is, this is something else that I have to consider. Um, yeah. It, and so then it's like, so do I use more of my energy on, 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 on this fight or do I, or, or when do I get to rest? Like when do, when do the people in Alabama get to rest? And when do people in these other states that have governors in place that are continuing to, to create bills and laws that affect people with historically marginalized identities, when do, when do they get to rest? Cause it's, it is all, for me, I'm, sometimes I feel like I'm always kind of looking over my shoulder. Yeah. So that, I think, takes us uh, nicely into our topic for today, because the topic for today is around nursery rhymes. And nursery rhymes are often what is introduced in early childhood settings or taught in early childhood settings. Um, nursery rhymes have been used to teach English to children for a long time for a variety of reason, reasons, including linguistic, cognitive, affective, and cultural concepts. Um, however, what we're going to talk about today is that many of the nursery rhymes that we have that nostalgia for are really based in racist concepts and how um, we can teach those same concepts um, such as linguistic, cognitive, rhyming, affective, cultural concepts uh, through different means, right? Through, um, through more 
inclusive ways because you will be surprised and there's going to be lots of links in our in our um, show notes that kind of gives you some ideas of what we have quote always sung and how there are some racist backgrounds to it so from an article written by someone who just goes by megan um on teach for change it's a blog basically um she talks exactly what i just talked about that we may have nostalgia um and we may really want to sing the songs that we sang but we have to understand the history. Um, and so some of the racist nursery rhymes are such as eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Basically, the original ones used the N-word. So eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch an N-word by the toe. Um, and so it's talking about catching slaves who run away. Um, another one is Oh Susanna. Um, and so, again, this is a song... Um, sung at a lot of kind of minstrel shows in the past. Um, but basically the lyrics again are about Africans, Amer African Americans who are depicted as ignorant, dumb, stupid. Um, they use the word derelict. They again use the N word in this. Five little monkeys, again, the five little monkeys use, originally used the N word. Um, do your ears hang low, again, that was originally using the N word. So we may all know this this tune. We, I'm gonna be honest, we sing this tune in my house um, just you know when we're messing around or when we're talking about um, you know getting our hair cut. Like, does your hair hang low? Does it wobble to and fro? Right? Like, we'll put other things in it. However, um, the original song was called N word. Love a watermelon. Ha ha ha. Um, ten little Indians. They, um, so using derogatory terms about Native Americans. And so there are a lot of, of these that you're going to have lots of resources in our show notes, but understanding that there are newer songs, <laughs> newer poems that you could use that will teach the same concepts that we, that we originally were using nursery rhymes for that, are more inclusive. I have to just pull out the Snoop Dogg. Um, the Snoop Dogg came out with like kid nursery rhymes and kid songs. Um, they, you could use it the same way that we use nursery rhymes, right? But they're positive, they're asset-based, they're really including everyone. So Lacey, thoughts about the use of nursery rhymes and really the, almost every single nursery rhyme we come into contact with has a history of racism. Yeah. So um, I think as, as a teacher, I remember for many, uh, many years, I would kind of like, okay, this is my curriculum for the year. Let me pull out my February folder. Let me pull out my, you know, wins, uh, my uh, May folder. Okay, this is a standard, you know, that I want to meet. This is a lesson that I did last year. Um, you know, this lesson didn't go well. This lesson went well, oh, this lesson I could never do with this group. Um, so I remember going through that. And there had to be times as I became, you know, more aware of what I, you know, what am I teaching my students? What do I want them to know before they leave my classroom? Uh, I became more aware of being intentional. Like, oh, just because the classroom across the hall is doing this and they have a cute little craft, I don't have to do this. Um, and so, but it 
it was hard. It took a big kind of mental shift for me to just stop doing what everyone else did. And so some, a lot of times with these nursing rhymes, we're doing what either we experienced as kids. Oh, I remember, you know, Miss Lindsay did this and it was so fun and then we made little sock puppets and I loved it. Or we're doing what we see other people do. And so um, when we talk about having an equity-focused lens, it is not just something that you just put on, take off. It is truly the way that you, like, you live your life. Um, and so teachers have to be willing to put in the, the extra effort, which I mean, I understand teachers have a lot going on, but putting the effort in to look and to see, hey, what does this mean? Or, hey, is there another way? Um, and I also remember that later on my organization adopted uh, a curriculum. And so like, this is the curriculum we're supposed to, like, supposed to teach here, here you go. This is what you're supposed to do on certain days. And even with that, taking the time out to look at those books, like look at the, the messages that were in the books, look at um, what lessons am I teaching my students? How can I incorporate and bring their home life and their home experience into it? Um, but these nursery rhymes, and especially what, since we're focused on racism today and they're having a, like a racist history, that if, because we we when we have brought this up in, in professional developments, we have had like teachers and people say like the images aren't that bad or like I just like for example Dr. Seuss books because there were six Dr. Seuss books that were pulled um I think last year for having racist images and I remember we presented that in the training that we did I think it was like February or March because it was around Dr. Seuss birthday and there was a lot of pushback like people were upset that we were trying to take their Dr. Seuss away and they were like, well, it's just, you know, I just read this once a year. It's a special event. But that you are showing these students and these families, like, this, this racist image. And so that's just another microaggression, right? That's just another hit. That's just another stereotype that you're presenting to them. Um, and so that we, if we truly want to create a place and a space where students and families feel like they belong, like we have to get rid of those things that that show them negative images of themselves. That 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 are racist. Like we have to get rid of them, no matter how how good it makes you feel. If it's making other people feel bad, if it's making other people be seen negatively, we we have to remove it. And so, um, just to kind of come to the end, I'm going to throw out the importance of using. Um, the, the importance of reflecting, but um, a tool that Annie and I constantly use and that we uh, kind of recommend that other people use is the Culturally Responsive Curriculum Scorecard, which was created by the Education Justice Research and Organizing Collaborative. Um, and so what it really is, is it allows you to like reflect on the curriculum and the diversity that is within that curriculum. It allows you to reflect on you know, the stereotypes that are within your curriculum um, because it is so important to really reflect, and not just you, to reflect as a group, to reflect as a team on the different curriculums and the things that you are using and presenting to students and to families. What messages are you sending out? What is the hidden curriculum, those hidden messages that students are learning? 
So yeah, going from that, make sure that you're having these conversations in collaboration with others. It's just as Lacey and I are modeling on this podcast, it's conversations that you have with others that help you grow. So we encourage you to keep the conversation going. Bye.